of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. For populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. Memorial Day weekend usually kicks the summer and high season with blue bunting, family picnics and barbecues, parades, and all sorts of outdoor fun. Well, driving to the to the studio this morning, I had my wipers on three and I still couldn't see, so I guess Mother Nature didn't get the message this year. But I think our family barbecue is now officially moving indoors. Before Memorial Day became the first major everything's on sale weekend of the summer, with the advent of the three-day holiday weekend created by Congress in 1971, it was a holiday meant to commemorate and honor the brave patriots killed in the nation's several wars. It was first celebrated three years after the end of the Civil War, to honor that war's dead by decorating their graves with flowers and flags, which is why it is celebrated in May, when spring flowers should all be in full bloom. I want you to tell that to my begonias, because they're just starting to yawn. The weather this year is really strange. Memorial Day is different than Veterans Day. It's celebrated with an, which is, which is celebrated with another big blowout sales weekend in November. Veterans Day, originally intended to celebrate the end of World War I, today recognizes and celebrates all those who have served in two world wars, in Korea, in Vietnam, in both Iraq wars, in Afghanistan, and in ongoing operations in the Middle East, Africa, Europe, Asia, and the Americas. Every day, we, the 99%, must honor the 1% and their families who serve and sacrifice. And here's fair warning. This is not going to be the only history lesson in this week's broadcast. That's the thing. You know, it really is true that when people don't read and study history, they are condemned to repeat it in one form or another. This week, like no other fo- folks, in <clears throat> this week, like no other, that statement is true. And people in Washington are, and, and across the country in politics and the media have been really, really, really busy this week trying to inflame your passions rather than to reason with you. Not to mention some un, some uh, presidential um, re-election teams who will remain nameless. My purpose is different. I've come to inform you, to give you information 
that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on that judgment. I'm a, as, as the intro says, I'm a businesswoman. I'm not a politician. So I look first at the numbers for what's happening. Numbers are an indicator. They give us a place to begin to explore a problem and figure out a solution. $16 billion, that's the amount of farm subsidy that President Trump is giving to farmers who have been hurt by the ongoing China-U.S. trade dispute. And those are mainly Midwestern grain farmers at this point. Hold that thought. $19 billion, that's the amount that the Senate has passed and that the House narrowly didn't pass on Friday in emergency relief. That's emergency relief for states that have suffered hurricanes, floods, fires, and other natural disasters. Think about those people in the camp fire area who desperately need that money. And hold that thought because the story around it is really, really interesting. Two federal courts of appeal. Both of those courts affirmed Congress's constitutional duty of oversight over the actions of the executive branch. Next up, Washington, D.C.'s Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And 230 years, the age of the Constitutional Republic of the United States of America. It will be 230 years old on June the 21st. So let's talk for a minute, just for a minute, about farm subsidies. U.S. farmers have fed the world since the Second World War ended. We're, they're the most productive farms in the world. Grain that, that kept Russia from starving, um, Grain that, that created bread in post-World War II Europe, uh, soybeans, um, and, and other basic substances that fuel both our commo food commodities and the world's. So until the imposition of tariffs, you know, it's a really profitable industry for the United States. Until the imposition of tariffs, of tariffs on Chinese imports into the U.S. by the Trump administration, the biggest customer for American soybeans was China. So here's what's happened. Two years ago, U.S. soybeans commanded a price of $16 a bushel. And I know what urbanites a bushel is. You know, if you look at one of those big baskets in um illustrations in the uh, uh, in advertising or sometimes spilled over in the in the grocery store that's a bushel um probably you know five gallons six gallons of material last june the price had fallen to $10.92 as the Chinese began to develop alternate sources of supply that didn't have a 10% tariff on them. <coughs> well, in, in I'm sorry, last June, the price fell as the Chinese began to develop alternate sources of supply because they didn't want to buy American exports when their imports were being uh, subject to a 10% tariff. So they began to buy soybeans from Brazil. 
And now the Chinese are actually building the infrastructure, the storage, etc., for ongoing soybean production in Brazil. Now, that has a number of consequences for American farming interests. First, it's the permanent loss of their largest market. How are they going to get that market share back? Secondly, Chinese development in South America um, pushes up against the Monroe Doctrine and shows why ignoring our own backyard diplomatically is so, and economically, is so consequential. But that's a subject for another day and not a new story. The price of soybeans, however, has now dropped to $8 a bushel if you can find a buyer. And the subsidy replacement price that the USDA can offer to a soybean farmer is... $1.62. It doesn't take a mathematical genius to understand how the loss of Chinese markets is causing a tsunami of bankruptcies and suicides across the grain belt of America, not to mention massive dislocating flooding this year. The increase of tariffs on Chinese imports to 25% is expected to have a devastating effect, not just on those soybean farmers or grain farmers, but on California farmers as well. Because the Chinese are now looking for alternative markets for almonds, pistachios, and stone fruits, where where California has been the largest supplier. This is a major problem, and with only $16 billion in farm subsidies, uh, we're going to see farm bankruptcies just as significant as those that the Midwest is seeing. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk about where the $16 billion is coming from. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. Just a little bit more. I This, ter- this issue of farm subsidies directly related to tariffs is really an important issue because it's been misunderstood in the, in the, some of the media and, and, certainly in some of the official pronouncements. So where is that 16? You know, we're running a trillion-dollar deficit this year in the federal budget. So where is that $16 billion in farm subsidies going to come from? Well, here's where it's not coming from. It's not coming from billions, and I'm quoting, billions of dollars in tariffs the Chinese are paying to the U.S. Treasury, unquote. That's because... There are no billions of dollars of tariff paid by China. When goods are imported into the United States, the importer, let's say Walmart, pays the tariff on the product and then turns right around and adds that tax. It is tariffs are a tax. Used to be the principal source of income to the U.S. government in way back in, you know, 1800. But what happens is that tax is 
autom- is added to the cost that the end consumer pays for those goods. So who is going to pay for those tariffs? You and me and every other consumer in America. Now, that's not any different today than it was in 1770 when the British imposed a tax on tea that led to the Boston Tea Party. Tariffs are a tax. Taxes are paid by the last person to touch the good or service. That's you and me. So we have seen in this last month a run on refrigerators and TVs and other electronic appliances that we import from China. Because consumers understand that as soon as these store shelves are emptied and new goods come in through U.S. ports of entry, they're going to cost 20 to 25 percent more. The U.S. economy is 80 percent consumption and 20 percent production. 80 percent of the new tariff, as well as of the old 10 percent tariff, is being paid by you and me and the poor farmer who's getting it at both ends. And remember that farming is a source of production. You know, I agree with President Trump and many of our skittish allies (laughs) that Chinese ambitions and Chinese trade practices must be dramatically changed and that the United States must maintain, reinforce, and expand its own productive capability. And when we're, while we're doing that, let's celebrate and not forget that agriculture is one of our largest production sectors and that the changes we are seeing can become permanent if they're not addressed in a more 21st century manner and addressed quickly. The three things that President Trump might have done that would have been more impactful in the 21st century would have been to strengthen the Trans-Pacific Partnership provisions that were objected to by most American politicians in 2016, and they were around labor and labor rights and labor law and protecting American jobs, and that's admirable. But we should have worked to strengthen that agreement against Chinese picking off one by one the members of the Trans-Pacific Partnership instead of seeking elusive bilateral agreements that were more common between the United States and its trading partners before the Second World War. We could, instead of imposing tariffs on China, we could have had a double whammy. We could have said, we're going to impose a carbon tax on China. Their industrial output, this consumption, this $300, $500 billion fetish we have of buying cheap Chinese goods is fueled by coal. That black stuff that just rained down on your car this morning is Chinese coal dust. We live in one world. So we've decreased our carbon uh, footprint by 600 billion metric tons over the last decade and a half. But we're only 25%. We can't eliminate climate change by ourselves. We can't excuse China. We cannot work to eliminate coal as a climate-killing fuel source in the United States and then encourage, nah, permit China to continue to build coal-fired plants to fuel their productive uh, capability and undermine ours. 
That's just not rational. And we need to impose strict new intellectual property controls that are subject to verification and litigation through the World Trade Organization. China required U.S. sponsorship to join the World Trade Organization. We made that happen for them. Now we've got to make them abide by the rules or pay the consequences globally. We cannot do this by ourselves. We must do it with our allies. They are just as damaged by Chinese uh, commercial aggression as we are. And you can tell I care deeply about this subject. So I believe that we need to be tougher with China. Um, There's no time to waste in, in a whole lot of different ways. But moving along, while that $16 billion was magically being spun up, $19 billion in emergency relief stalled because one member, one first-term member of the House GOP caucus decided it was time for some local grandstanding. Now, what does that legislation cover? You've seen it on television. You're seeing it every night. There were 200 tornadoes in the last month in the Midwest ton of destruction. There is flooding on the Mississippi, on the Missouri, on the, in, in the Dakotas, um, all the way um, through the industrial heartland. And, you know, whole homes are underwater. These people need help. And that $19 billion is aimed at helping. It is also aimed at helping hurricane disaster recovery. In Florida, the Carolinas, Houston, and Puerto Rico. It is also aimed at helping to get the cleanup done and start rebuilding California communities devastated by fire, north and south, in the last two years. And there's more fire and water damage in the Pacific Northwest. All of that sounds like that's really a place you want your tax dollars spent, right? Well, Congressman Chip Roy refused to allow the bill to pass by unanimous consent because it was only disaster relief funding, and it didn't include $4.4 billion for southern border crossing um, additional funding for Homeland Security. So relief for millions and millions of Americans— is being halted by one first-term congressman, and this is really important. You have to listen carefully here. This is one first-term congressman who wants his 15 minutes of fame because Congress is working diligently in a bipartisan fashion, something we don't say here very often, right? A bipartisan bill to get DHS $4.4 billion in supplemental help for the humanitarian and law enforcement issues on the border. So what Congressman Roy did was pull a stunt, a stunt at at the expense of millions of suffering Americans just so he could go home and crow. And unfortunately, I point to this only because it's an example of the stunts that are continuously pulled by both sides of the aisle, which is why Congress has an under 12% approval rating nationally. And we'll be back in about one minute, one and a half minutes, to talk about saving the republic. 
back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. Well, that's scary. What was that? Well, that's the strange noise we've all been hearing lately. It's the founding fathers whirling in their graves. Oh, that's what that was. Yes. Because many Americans wonder just how much more abnormal governing the body politic can endure before the constitutional parchment is destroyed. At no time in this country's history since George III has a leader put his own personal comfort and needs before the needs of the people. And we can think back to the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal and that all men live under the same laws. Okay. Um, The President of the United States this week said he will not do the people's business until and unless Congress declares that Donald Trump is above the law and immune from question or investigation. In that position, he is supported by his new Attorney General, William Barr. I feel like I'm in the Twilight Zone. Uh, I think we are. Those who do not read history are... are um, condemned to repeat it. And and I know that a lot of people listening right now are, are going, oh, there she goes on her never trumping, and that's not what I'm doing. If you listen to the argument, you're going to realize that what I am concerned about is not this particular president, but the so-called imperial presidency that is reducing Congress the intended most powerful body that closest to the people to a debating society, a very, very well-paid and expensive debating society, but a debating society nonetheless. And that's not sustainable in terms of the republic. So this week, the president basically said he will not do the people's business until Congress stops investigating him, although one of the constitutional powers that the, that is given to Congress is the right and the duty to investigate. And William Barr is highly supportive of this position. William Barr is a respected lawyer, but he's not a courtroom criminal or civil um, litiga- litigator. He has a unitary view of the executive. That's a very expansive view, which is at odds with the founding fathers and the first, second, third, and fourth executives of this country. So beginning with George Washington and through, um, well, through modern history, um, every president, including Richard Nixon, has known that um, he was subject to um, oversight and actually, um, uh, in the final sense, his job depended um, on the Congress, okay? 
So the father, the founding fathers went to great lengths to ensure that Congress and not the executive would be a source of great power in the republic, small r, you know, form of government. Congress is the closest branch to the people. And in the eyes of the founding fathers, it therefore should be Congress that made the important decisions. Taxation, budget and spending, the right to declare war, the admission of new states to the Union, the creation of amendments to the Constitution, the passage of basic civil and criminal law, advice and consent to all judicial and cabinet appointments, and finally, the ability to remove an executive from office through impeachment. No president, no president has the power to remove a single member of Congress or the judiciary from office. Think about that for a minute. You think about where did the founding fathers put the power? In Article 1, not in Article 2, the president is an executive. It is his job to administer the will of the people as represented by Congress. No president, not Andrew Johnson, who was impeached and survived conviction by one vote and was not renominated by his party. Not Richard Nixon, who resigned when faced with impeachment and the certainty of conviction in the Senate. Not Bill Clinton, who survived conviction in the Senate. Not George W. Bush during the Valerie Plain investigation and other uh, issues. Not George H.W. Bush during uh, the um, uh, Iran-gate uh, investigation. Not Barack Obama during either Fast and Furious or Benghazi. The people's business went on. I mean, while he was under the threat of impeachment, Richard Nixon opened our first um, uh, uh, bilateral negotiations with China post-World War II. It's more than just failing to do the people's business while an investigation into an issue is going on. It's that there is a, con there is a con constitutional mandate affirmed by the Supreme Court in 1927 in a decision called McGrain versus Doherty. And, and when Trump refuses to let people uh, come and speak when they are subpoenaed by Congress, he places those, he directly defies this 1927 Supreme Court decision that says that Congress has the right to call any witness or, and, and to demand um, documents not covered by executive privilege, um, and he places those individuals who are subpoenaed in personal legal jeopardy. The president has attacked, threatened, and worked to undermine his own intelligence agencies. Friday's executive order puts Bill Barr over Vice President Pence in the executive order of authority. An unelected official now has the absolute right given by the Constitution to declassify the country's most closely held intelligence secrets. 
And while we go to break, I'm going to ask you, what legitimate business does William Barr have in getting names and files of longtime covert agents of the United States and its allied nations? How dangerous can that be to our national security and to the security of our allies? And we'll be back in just a moment with a little more. Listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. Has anybody got an answer as to why the Attorney General of the United States should be given the right to declassify the names and actions of? Allied and U.S. covert agents. People's lives are at stake here, folks. It's not a question of ego. It's a question of law. It's a question of national security. No president, in, and we've now named quite a number, not Andrew Johnson, not Richard Nixon, not Bill Clinton, no president has ever accused one of the investigators of his behavior of his actions in office. Uh, We certainly know that that's the role of Congress, is to argue with the executive, is to prevent the executive from doing things that are not in the best interests of the people. But no president has ever called an investigation into his conduct in a specific situation treason. Treason is a really loaded word. Do you know treason is the only crime that is specified in the Constitution? It is punishable by death. It is inspired by Benedict Arnold's perfidy during the Revolutionary War. And as stated in the Constitution, no person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. The Constitution defines treason as, no, so listen carefully, as specific acts, namely levying war, against the United States of America or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Now, the Taliban sympathizer who was just released from prison about three days ago was not was not charged with treason, although you could make a case. That was a question a judge asked of General Flynn's behavior with the Russians and the Turks while serving as national security advisor to President Trump. And again, the answer was no, it's not treason because treason is levying war against the United States or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. So can we take that word out of the discussion? And how many investigations of the investigators does it take to prove what has already been proved. Senate Judiciary Committee Chair and sometimes Trump ally Lindsey Graham asked Chief Judge Justice Roberts, the, the most powerful judge in the United States, 
the guy who appoints judges to the FISA courts, he asked him to review the FISA warrants that were issued during the 26 campaign investigation and to uh, opine as to whether they were appropriately formed, appropriately predicated, appropriately approved, and whether they were fruitful and to recommend any changes in that process which he believes should go into the law. Now, that is the right way to investigate the investigators. If at its root we are arguing about the FISA warrants, then that's where that should begin. If we are able to identify at the keystroke, as we have, Russian agents who have interfered in our elections, then we should praise to God Almighty, the brave souls who got us that information, rather than put their lives at risk in a political witch hunt. I care about the country. I bleed red, white, and blue. I want a strong and transparent America. This is not the way to get it. And as to transparency, every president since Richard Nixon has made his taxes public. In fact, in fact... By making his taxes public, Richard Nixon got caught fudging his taxes. Yep, he cheated. And since 1924, following the Teapot Dome scandal, IRS regulations have specified that the president's taxes be turned over to the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. That's a congressional order at the request of the chair. And by the way, there's never been a woman in that seat. So that's why I said he, okay. Um, and and why why was that regulation put in there? Because in in the uh, in, in 1922 began this thing called the Teapot Dome scandal, in which the the uh, Secretary of the Interior got um, huge kickbacks from a couple of big oil companies in order to give them access to um, the the National Petroleum um, Reserve and got caught and went to jail. And so um, because he was a part of the administration, Congress felt it was appropriate to make sure that President Harding was not involved in the scheme and thus they wanted to look at his financial records. And so... That uh, after after that initial cursory look at President Harding's records, it was decided by Congress that Congress needed to have that authority in order to protect the the country. So now you know what the legis the actual legislation said. So then I have to ask a very basic question: Do you believe a president without one significant? piece of legislation that improved the lives of everyday Americans is really going to win re-election when a $2 trillion deal with the Democrats would create something like $8 trillion in economic activity. Do you know how many good jobs that would make? That would be a positive effort rather than these late-term abortion ban bills that are all going to die at the Supreme Court. Okay, let me tell you. If you listen carefully to what Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh said in their uh, confirmation hearings, and yes, they are establishment with a capital E Republicans, or go back to 2004 when George 
W. Bush was asked about about abortion in a presidential debate, and he said, and I and I, and 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 Gorsuch and Kavanaugh said the same thing. Roe v. Wade is settled law. To which President Bush added, "Can we move along now?" Okay, so we're not going. Republicans are not going to win a presidential election, which is fought over the extremes of abortion. So I want you to think about what I've just said about what President Trump has done this week with executive orders, um, sending military equipment to Saudi Arabia and the Emirates um, and no, the UAA, uh, United Arab Emirates and um, and uh, moving Pentagon money around uh, to build walls, all in the defiance of Congress, et cetera, and changing DACA status and any number of things, right, that have no validity, they have no permanence in law. So I want you to stop for just a minute and understand this wonderful concept in American government, in, in English common law, actually. It's called precedent. Will you cheer, let's say, President Kamala Harris, 100 days after her inauguration um, is going to, has promised that she will um, enact gun control through her own executive order if Congress doesn't do it in 100 days? Are you going to cheer her? Are you going to cheer President Biden when he declares there is no national emergency at the southern border and ends President Trump's executive action? Because those are the precedents that President Trump and his new attorney general are establishing. And the next and the next president is going to follow them. So just and and expand on them every time you allow the executive to expand its power against Congress, you move closer and closer to a unitary executive, also known as a monarchy or a dictatorship. I want you to think about that. I'm sure a number of you will send me email, Joyce at reimagineamerica.org. And we'll be back in a minute with a few closing thoughts. Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And I'm sorry, last week we were preempted by uh, the A's pregame show. So if you didn't hear the uh, subsequent broadcast at 3 p.m., our guest was Mark Gregorian from a nationally recognized expert on immigration issues who has served as the executive director for the Center of Immigration Studies since 1995. And the center is an independent, nonpartisan research organization in Washington, D.C. that examines and, crit- and critiques the impact of immigration on the United States. It is animated by a pro-immigrant, low-immigration vision, which seeks fewer immigrants but a warmer welcome for those admitted. And the center, established in 1985, responded to the need for reliable, fact-based research in the immigration area. And that's what we talked about. We talked about the numbers and we talked about the impact on um, in the existing system. We talked about some of the system's failings. We talked about some of the ways that the system could be improved. Um, we only had an hour, so we didn't cover all, everything. Um, 
but it, it's um, worth the time. It was very educational. Uh, so if you'd, like, if you'd like to listen to that free-ranging discussion surrounding the immigration numbers and some potential solutions, go to ricochet.com backslash reimagine America and join the over 9,000 others who have already downloaded it. Ricochet is a national podcast network focusing on presenting various center-right political thought and solutions um, to the opportunities and challenges facing 21st century America. We hope that many of you will become regular listeners at ricochet.com as we explore a variety of topics in depth, in addition to regular radio programming. If you have a comment or a topic that you'd like me to cover, you can send me an email at Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or a tweet at Joyce Cordy, all lowercase, one word, or at Reimagine America Radio. Reimagine America is independent and nonprofit. If you enjoy our independent voice, please consider making a small donation at reimagineamerica.org. We have some time left. We have two whole minutes left to cover. Let's. And Vince is always. There's those founding fathers again. Yeah, those founding fathers again. I I wonder if those founding fathers could have imagined 23 Democrats running for one nomination. They'd probably ask, what's a Democrat? Uh, Yeah, they probably would. The the Democrats, they didn't even exist back then, did they? Uh, No, they start with Jefferson. And, And actually, the founding fathers tried every which way they could in creating the um, Constitution to prevent the growth of political factions like the Republicans and the Democrats. Have they decided how they're going to do this debate thing? I heard they're not going to do like a kiddie table, like an undercard like they did with the the Republicans. They're going to split it up in half. They're going to have two. They're saying you have to have um, 65,000 supporters. And uh, there are all kinds of little conditions. You have to have, you know, positive polling numbers, et cetera. Um, They're going to have two nights and it's going to be like no upper card and lower card like the like the Republicans had where they had the guys with the highest numbers on the first, you know. So they're going to have two separate nights. And and guess what? Nobody's going to tune in the second night. And here's what I want to know. You want to know what we might talk about next week, depending on what happens in the world? I want to know what their vision of 21st century America is. Do you have... Do you have any idea what any of these Democrats envision as a happy, successful 21st century America? If you do, send me an email because it's definitely not clear. We'll see you next week. This is Bob Zanuck. <laughs> Over and out. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.